And a bit of kick-ass there from the Fuzzy Logic, or for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. And I'm going to kick off today's program with a little anecdote about my brother-in-law whose name is John. Now, John was an apprentice aircraft mechanic in the Air Force, and uh, he had all lined up his career. He was going to do his study, and he was going to be working in the Air Force. But he started to fail and, and wasn't concentrating in his classes, was dozing off, didn't seem to be paying attention. So the Air Force decided that he wasn't suited to this job. And so they shipped him on a train down to Melbourne for a new career in the Catering Corps because they felt that was something he could cope with. So John gets on the train and he gets thirsty. So what does he do? He goes to the drink machine and guess what he drinks? A bottle of Coca-Cola. And a little while later, he's still thirsty. So another soft drink and so on. And then finally he gets to um, Melbourne, to the aircraft Air Force Base down in Melbourne. And he is really thirsty. So what does he do? Milkshake. What John didn't know is that he was suffering from type 1 diabetes. And all of those things he was drinking were packed with sugar. The worst possible thing for a type 1 diabetic to be mainlining in his situation. And what he didn't know was he was well on his way to a diabetic coma. Now it's extremely good luck for him that he met a medical orderly on the base when he got to Melbourne. And the medical orderly noticed that something was not quite right with John and he took him straight away to the clinic and they had him tested. Well it turns out that John's blood sugar levels were going absolutely off the scale and he was on the verge of a, of a diabetic coma. He was hyper, hyper over the top glycemic. So that's my personal story with type 1 diabetes and John now is managing his diabetes more or less and he injects daily and measures his blood sugar and controls his diet and all that. But diabetes is a really big issue for health in Australia, and especially type 2, I believe. But we have an expert. It's a great privilege to have into the interview, and she's looking a little demure at this point, Dr. Charmaine Simonovic, who is the head of the diabetes... Oh, she's the diabetes research with over 30 years' experience, and she leads the diabetics and transplantation immunobiology... Uh, say that again, Immunobiology Laboratory at the John Curtin School of Medical Research. And it's a great privilege to have your company this morning, Charmaine. Welcome to Fuzzy Logic. Thank you, Rod, and thank you very much for the invitation. Now, John there in my story was suffering from type 1 diabetes, undiagnosed until that time. What's going on in his body with all this sugar? What's it doing to him? Well, type 1 diabetes is, a, an, is an autoimmune disease, which means the, uh, the body's immune system is uh, destroying the, uh, the cells in the body that produce insulin. And insulin is needed to uh, control the levels of sugar in the blood. So eventually, during the progression of this disease, the insulin-producing beta cells, they're called, uh, that are present in the islets of Langerhans that are located in the pancreas, those beta cells end up being completely destroyed 
and uh, patients are then dependent on uh, daily injections of insulin to control their blood sugar. So was this really, am I being a little bit overdramatic in my story there, was he really in a dangerous situation there? Uh, well, that's correct, and, and I can relate a similar story. Um, in fact, I had two cousins that were visiting my parents' home many, many, many years ago, and my mother noticed that uh, one of my cousins kept going to the kitchen sink to drink water. And... Uh, she uh, brought this to the attention of, of my cousins. To, uh, subsequently, uh, my cousin was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, but uh, in a recent uh, uh, newspaper article, uh, in fact, uh, uh, my cousin sort of alluded to the fact that uh, this condition was probably exacerbated at the time because my father had a soft drink business <laughs> and our fridge was loaded with uh, uh, soft drinks. So uh, she felt that that probably made it even worse during that visit. But it's true, you know, there's increased thirst, uh, increased um, eating and increased needing to uh, go to the toilet and, and, and urinate. Yeah. yeah, and so is it really as as life threatening a condition in that? I mean, I, I use the term diabetic coma. Mm. Is that actually possible? Yes, if uncontrolled. Yes, yes, and it can be life threatening in that situation. So, in that situation, the body is being flooded with way too much sugar that's not being controlled by the insulin. Is that is that correct? Yes. And, yes. and so there's no insulin being produced. Right. Or very little at that stage. Right. Mm. And so it really must be very upsetting for your whole metabolism to, to have this great influx of sugar. It, it, it's a damaging thing for you, right? Well, what can happen is that um, uh, other, other metabolic uh, problems develop as a result and um, fat is broken down and ketone levels increase in, in the blood and, and that, creates, that creates problems too. Ah, ketones. Now, I remember having a, a, a really bad uh, virus and I went to the doctor and he said, You're, I hadn't been eating and I was going ketonic. So I think you get really bad breath like well, on the Atkins diet. That's right, that's diet. right. Yeah. That's right. It's acetone breath, <laughs> like an acetone. Right. Uh, so bad breath might be another sign. <laughs> now, you, you mentioned we, we both talked about soft drinks just now. Now, I have one of these little so-called energy blast drinks. It's called a pocket rocket, and it's got guana energy shot written on the side of it. And it says, do not drink if you're, if you're pregnant and so on like this. But I'm just looking for the nutritional information on the side of it. Fat, sugar... Uh, not much fat or sugar. Sugars, 13 grams, 13.3 grams in this little bottle, which is, well, it's a tiny bottle. It's The whole bottle is only 60 mils. Is this, to some extent, a, a symptom of our modern lifestyle that we were consuming? I guess I'm, maybe I'm now talking about type 2 diabetes. In fact, let's, let's go back a step. Let's clarify type 1 and type 2, please, can we, can we do that? And then we'll okay. talk about the, the, the soft drinks. Right. So type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. I think I mentioned the, uh, the um, immune system attacks the insulin-producing beta cells and uh, 
in the long term this, res this kills the beta cells and as a result they can't produce insulin any longer. In the case of type 2, uh, the beta cells are still producing insulin, at least in the early stages, but the body's not able to use the insulin effectively. So it doesn't and this, this results in stress on the beta cell to try and produce more insulin and ultimately that can lead to the failure of the insulin producing cells. Ah, okay. So you, your body, you, you are producing insulin in type 2. Initially, you, Initially. Yes. Oh, and then it later damages your insulin production? Yes, at a later because, phase? because um, the response to the response to not being able to use the insulin correctly the response of the beta cell is to make more to try to control the glucose level. Right. And this leads to stress on the beta cell. And over time, uh, this can lead to beta cell death. And at that point, this is a situation where patients with type 2 diabetes can also become insulin dependent and dependent on having to, to give, insulin, um. give themselves insulin injections. Okay. Yeah. Now, is it true that type 2 diabetes is something of a lifestyle thing yes. that is affected by our diets and hence my earlier ramble about the sugar in this little drink yes. here? Yes. Is that true? That's true. And it uh, can be managed to a large extent by change of diet and uh, ex by more exercise. And exercise as well? Mm. So this exercise is is it using up the glucose that's in your body? Is yes. it's burning the <laughs> glucose? Is that how it's working? Okay. So now, how big an issue is diabetes in Australia? Well, uh, there's about um, nine hundred thousand diabetics in Australia. Probably more than that. Uh, over nine hundred thousand diabetics in Australia. About 10% of those would be type 1, people with type 1 diabetes, and the remainder uh, would have type 2 diabetes. So it is, it is a big health issue. It is a big health issue, and uh, the cost to the Australian uh, healthcare system uh, is estimated to be over 900 million per year. That's, yeah, that's, so that's, that's for both types of diabetes. Right, yeah. right. Now, with John, I have observed or he's told us about a whole series of knock-on health effects of his type 1 diabetes. So, for example, he's got an infection in his toe and he's now had three toes on his feet removed. What, mm -hmm. what, what's going on there? This, uh, as a result of the insulin therapy keeps... Uh, people with type 1 diabetes reasonably healthy but it doesn't the insulin therapy doesn't precisely control the level of sugar in the blood and there end up being fluctu quite wide fluctuations in blood glucose levels between injections of insulin and this uh, leads to complications vascular complications microvascular macrovascular complications that can lead to heart disease, to blindness, retinopathy, uh, to nerve disease, neuropathy, heart, did I say heart disease, y kidney yeah. disease. Kidney. So yes. there are a lot of very serious long-term complications that can develop as a result of, of long-term uh, insulin therapy and the ability, the inability to 
to very precisely control the levels of sugar in the blood. Right. So in the case of his feet, I understand that he was being treated with antibiotics, but his body was having trouble clearing the infection, so you you said problems with circulation. There can be circulation problems in the periphery, yes. So it's damaged circulation. And you also mentioned the term neuropathy, so it affects nerve sensations in the in the limbs. Is that yes, correct? Yes, in the periphery, and and to some extent, in, in some situations, for example, a a patient who has had type one diabetes for a long time and who has developed these secondary complications may not be able to feel that they have just walked on a piece of glass, for example. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Uh, that actually reminds me, I might be completely wrong here, but to draw a long bow, leprosy patients, I believe, have a similar problem where they might have an infection starting in a, in a limb somewhere and they don't notice because they can't feel it properly. Right. I venture an inexpert opinion there. But interesting, though, I'm, I'm writing a book on sound and the effects of sound, and recently I was at my uh, girlfriend's, uh, my girlfriend, my daughter's, place and her boyfriend has a tuning fork and this got my attention because it's a tuning fork pitched to the C, the middle C on the piano keyboard, 128 hertz as it happens. But uh, I said, why do you have that? And what they do is the podiatrists, they, they bing this thing and they put it on the foot. And if you can feel the, the vibration, the vibration ah. then, you, then you have... Uh, normal uh, sense but if you have a neuropathy as you called it then maybe you have uh, damaged nerve sensation right. to the okay. extremities mm. so mm. It's, it's, it's amazing isn't it the way the things overlap here that one field of science is not really tightly segmented from another and and things overlap so you actually have a really interesting story here about the overlap of research, about how we escape from our little boxes sometimes. That's right. <laughs> what, what, what happened? Um, well, our current, uh, our current research in type 1 diabetes is dealing with how we can uh, prevent the progression of the disease. And this uh, new research came about by um, a chance conversation between... Um, Professor Chris Parrish at the John Curtin School of Medical Research and myself um, a bit over 10 years ago in a corridor in, in now, um, in actually the old John Curtin School building. And as a result of that conversation, Chris suggested, uh, you know, certain things to me that, that we should follow up on. And uh, from there has developed this new area of research and we're now uh, developing uh, new therapeutics that we wouldn't we hope to be able to take to the clinic as a as a new treatment for uh, preventing the progression of type 1 diabetes in particular in patients at an early stage of their disease. Uh, you know, this, this strikes me as the left and the right-hand side of an equation. Coming together. And, yes. the, and the T room was the equals sign. <laughs> That's right. So Chris is or doctor or professor... Professor Par- Chris Parrish. Parrish. Uh, uh, what, what, was, his, what is his, his field? Well, his field is um, immunology, cancer biology, vascular biology, and he's uh, an expert in uh, heparin sulfate, 
a complex sugar and it's uh, how it uh, uh, affects the migration of cells in the body and uh, heparinase, an enzyme that uh, actually breaks down this sugar and allows and facilitates migration of, of cells. And these can be immune cells going to a site of infection or it can be uh, cancer cells metastasizing to secondary sites. It's ah, a similar principle. Right, so not, on the, not directly, in other words, a diabetes researcher. No, no. And you came to this with your own diabetes background. That's right. So what was that? Uh, I had, um, at the time, um, probably over 25 years' experience in, in type 1 diabetes research. Um, and up to that point, I had focused mainly on understanding how transplants of insulin-producing tissue are rejected and how we could possibly prevent them from being rejected so that that could be a, a replacement therapy for potentially for patients who have had type 1 diabetes for a long period of time, so established disease. So replacing the insulin-producing cells, yes. Well, I'm, I'm seeing whole panoply of science going on in here and all different sorts of things. You mentioned cancer and metastasizing and vascularization, cell chemistry, transplantation, xenotransplantation. <laughs> it, it's a really big and fascinating field. And our guest here on Fuzzy Logic is Dr. Charmaine Simonovic. And she is the leader of the Diabetes and Transplantation Immunobiology Laboratory at the John Curtin School of Medical Research. And I think we might break to a little track. This one is appropriately called Fat Man. And uh, <laughs> maybe one of the effects or related effects of diabetes uh, from that old classic group Jethro Tull, 1970-something. a bit of Jethro Tull for we retro fans. I hope you enjoy that as much as I do. He's uh, Jethro Tull. Yes, last I saw him in concert, he had a broken leg and couldn't reach the high notes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're talking diabetes today and transplantation. And our guest is Dr. Shalane Simonovic, who is the head of the Diabetes and Transplantation Immunobiology, I have trouble with that word every time, at the John Curtin School of Medical Research here at the ANU. Now, just before the fat man break there, Charmaine, um, we were talking about the sugars, the so-called heparin, heparin sulfate. That's right. And we could get very technical at this point, but can you give us a, a simple story about this sugar and its related enzyme? Where, how does this fit into the, into the chemistry of your cell? into type 1 diabetes. Type 1. Yes. Well, what we found is that um, beta cells, the insulin-producing cells of the body, have very high levels of this complex sugar, heparin sulfate, in them. And it's, it's very unique to beta cells, this, this property, because normally the heparin sulfate is found either on the surface of cells or outside cells. And our in vitro studies... Um, studies in the laboratory 
demonstrated that this sugar was, uh, this complex sugar was really critical for the survival of beta cells, the insulin producing cells, and without the sugar, uh, the insulin producing cells died. Now, we have an experimental model of type 1 diabetes that we use. It's called the NOD mouse, and it's really the closest preclinical model, the preclinical model that's closest to the human type 1 diabetes disease. And we found that during disease development, uh, the islets, the islets of Langhans and the beta cells in those islets progressively lost their um, content of, of this heparin sulfate complex sugar. And we found out furthermore that this was due to an enzyme heparinase that was produced by the immune cells coming in and, and, and attacking those islets. And the heparinase, we found, uh, it degrades. It, it's known to degrade heparin sulfate. So the way we think uh, type 1 diabetes develops is by the, this enzyme being produced by the immune cells, destroying not only, well, firstly, not only helping uh, the immune cells migrate from blood vessels to the islets of Langerhans and to the beta cells, but thereafter actually destroying the, the sugar inside the beta cells. And this then leads to beta cell death. And that's what our, our studies in the laboratory have shown, that if the beta cells don't have that sugar, they die. So in type 1 diabetes, the sugar is in the beta cells is being degraded by an enzyme produced by the immune cells as they come in and... Uh, uh, form an inflammatory response around those uh, islets of Langerhans. Ah, so uh, is the immune system directly targeting, in inverted commas, the islets or the beta cells? Yeah, or, or is it just a byproduct mm, of, of the, what their activity? No, it's it's a beta cell specific disease. Um, in fact, there are other endocrine cells in the islets of Langerhans that are not affected by. Uh, the disease process, it's specifically directed against the insulin-producing cells. Um, and consistent with this, it's only the, the beta cells that contain these high levels of, of the uh, complex sugar heparin sulfate that's needed for their survival. Okay, but mm. do, do we know if the immune system is taking a shine to the beta cells that it's, it's specifically attacking them in some way or is it like collateral damage accidental damage do you think or do we know well it's it's known that the um, uh, part of that immune response uh, part of that white blood cell immune response is directed against uh, islet cell or anti uh, antigens proteins produced by the islet uh, beta cells and they can even be against uh, epitopes or determinants on the insulin molecule itself. Ah, so th this joins a fairly long catalogue of diseases where the immune system attacks the body inappropriately. That's right. So uh, It's autoimmune, uh, autoimmune. autoimmune disease. Yeah. Yes. So I think some types of arthritis, right. multiple sclerosis, even asthma perhaps, maybe. But um, something triggers the immune system now to, to do this. It targets the cells, the antigens on the cells. Mm. 
there, there tends to be um, a genetic susceptibility for type 1 diabetes, a genetic susceptibility, a heightened susceptibility. Uh, but then it's generally understood that there's an environmental trigger as well. And uh, there doesn't appear to be just one environmental trigger. Uh, that the interaction between the heightened suscept genetic susceptibility mm. and environment uh, then leads to disease onset and thereafter progression and uh, type 1 diabetes. So this is itself a, an important topic, isn't it? Because we're talking about the possibility of early prevention or early detection and possibly prevention. And so you say there's some genetic markers, some possible genetic involvement. How much do we know about that? There are uh, HLA uh, genetic traits that are a susceptibility traits for type 1 diabetes. That's only one side of the, one side of the equation, though. And as I said, you need uh, environmental triggers as well. And, and studies with, for example... Um, monozygotic twins have s suggested that indicated there's only about 30% concordance at least in early uh, at young age it's like one one twin developing type 1 diabetes but the other twin there's only a 30% chance of the other twin developing type 1 diabetes so that indicates that there's an environmental trigger as well it's not just genetic because they have the same genetic makeup monozygotic twins Ah, uh, mm. yes. So there's, it's, you've got to be susceptible and then you need something to actually mm. trigger it. it it's, it's a and really the details of those environmental uh, triggers are not, not well known and there seems to be more than one. Okay. So mm. let's go back now to the sugars or the complex yeah. sugars, which are supposed to be in the beta cells. The heparin, heparins, heparin sulfates. sulfates. That's right. And... Uh, so your research is about these sugars and uh, about their presence in the beta cells. Correct. Can you, wh wh where do we go from there? Okay. And then during our experimental models have shown that during the development of 1 diabetes that sugar is degraded, leaving the beta cells susceptible to uh, ah. death. And we think that, we think that uh, the uh, complex sugar is protecting the beta cells from... Um, oxidants that are generated as a result of the high metabolic activity of the beta cells. The beta cells have to produce a lot of insulin. That means that they have a high metabolic rate and these, uh, these oxidants are a byproduct of, of metabolic activity. So the heparin sulfate, we think, uh, actually protects the beta cells against damage by those, uh, uh, by those reactive chemical species. Okay. Now, is your research then about preventing the damage in the first place? That's right. What we've shown in animal models is that um, if we can inhibit uh, the enzyme heparinase that normally degrades that heparin sulfate, then we can protect, at least in our an animal models of type 1 diabetes, we can protect the animals against the development of type 1 diabetes. And this is the, the new therapy uh, that uh, we are keen to... Um, translate to the clinic as a, as a, a new treatment for trying to pre for preventing the progression of type 1 diabetes in in patients that have newly been diagnosed with uh, type 1 diabetes 
So if you can stop the disease in the first place, then you made a huge difference to the person's life, I imagine. That's right. The, the aim would be uh, to preserve uh, the insulin-producing cells that have not yet been damaged at the time of diagnosis. It's known that there's a, a honeymoon period um, uh, around the time of, of diagnosis of type 1 diabetes for a short period, perhaps up to 12 months, where patients can have um, perhaps less requirement for, for insulin injections. And it seems as though during that period the, uh, the beta cells that are that are still haven't been damaged uh, are able to produce a bit more insulin to help the individuals maintain uh, blood sugar levels in the normal range. But eventually, normally that disease then progresses and uh, the, the beta cells can no longer produce the insulin. So if we have a therapy that prevents, that preserves that um, the beta cells that are functioning at the time of diagnosis mm. and allows them to continue to produce insulin, then hopefully we'll be able to minimise or even prevent the need for insulin injections and in turn hopefully prevent those long-term complications of, of type 1 diabetes that can develop, that can lead to heart disease and kidney disease and mm. um, problems with circulation in the periphery and amputation of yeah. Well, when, when I think of what it's done to my brother-in-law, John, how it's affected him. So not only has he lost three toes on two feet, he's had um, significant kidney uh, function loss. And he's had, I think you called it retinopathy, mm -hmm. which is damage to the retina. So Affecting vision. It's affected yes. his vision. And it can, this can lead in uh, some cases to blindness. Yes, well, mm. in one eye he's lost 70%, so that's a, that's a significant impairment. So is this to do with the circulation again the, in, in the retina? The, the, the it's damage? microvascular disease in the retina. So it's another, yes. and mm. perhaps in the kidney the same thing then? It, it, macrovascular disease. Macrovascular, <laughs> yes. okay. Yes. Well, so in all, in all it's a pretty it's a pretty debilitating, not debilitating might be too strong a word, but it's a, it's a systemic problem that your body has. So what, what I observe with, with, with John is that he'll have a big hit of something, maybe enjoy a, a nice meal, and I suspect his blood sugar goes right up, and then he'll have an extra dose of insulin and his sugar goes right down. So he's getting wildly varying blood sugar. Fluctuations. And that... It's generally understood that it's those wide fluctuations in blood sugar levels that lead to the vascular disease. Mm. So if we can preserve, if with our new therapy uh, that we're developing, if we can preserve in newly diagnosed patients the proportion of their beta cells that are still functioning, then insulin will then be able to be produced physiologically as the body requires it and then as normal individuals do. And that would then allow patients to be f hopefully free of insulin injections, the need to inject themselves with insulin. Mm. It, it is a lifelong condition and it's, it's a, pretty, a pretty serious one. Now you mentioned that this is a collaboration with your own lab and with Professor Parrish's research. Mm. Uh, and you said his background is in cancer, is that? 
Is that uh, vascular biology, vascular cancer biology, biology immunology. And yes. You, and so, are there? Are you seeing spin-offs back in that direction as well? Actually, the spin-off is in the other direction. It, the spin-off has come from the cancer biology and vascular biology to the diabetes. And in fact, the heparinase inhibitor that uh, Chris and his laboratory and his team developed uh, for clinical uh, use in um, treatment of certain cancers has actually been also beneficial in our animal studies in preventing the development of type 1 diabetes. However, in the case of our uh, developing these drugs for type 1 diabetes, our need is to develop uh, very safe drugs because in the case of type 1 diabetes, it's the disease is not immediately life-threatening as it can be in situations associated with cancer. So our, our new drugs, our new heparinase inhibitor drugs need to be very safe. Mm -hmm. And that is what uh, uh, the focus of our work is on now. Ah, oh, fascinating stuff. We might go a bit more into transplantation, xenotransplantation, stem cell therapies and all other things to do with how we treat people who are suffering or might suffer from diabetes. And our guest today is Dr. Sarmain, sorry, Sarmain, <laughs> Sharmain Simonovic, who is the leader of the Diabetes and Transplantation Immunobiology Laboratory at the John Curtin School of Medical Research. And time to kick off another track. This one is the, uh, the Rolling Stones and Brown Sugar, it seems appropriate here in a conversation about diabetes on 2XX and fuzzy logic. And a bit of the Rolling Stones there here on Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. We're talking about diabetes, treatments, preventions. What can you do about what is actually quite an unpleasant disease, especially if you've got it. And a big economic impact in Australia because diabetes is a big health issue across the nation, type 1 and type 2. And helping us with this topic today is our guest, Dr. Charmaine Simonovic who is the leader of the Diabetes Transplantation Immunobiology Laboratory at the John Curtin School of Medical Research. Now, before the track, Charmaine, we were talking about treatments and you mentioned transplants mm. and that was your original area. So what, what happened with transplants? Well, uh, one way of, of um, trying to improve treatment for um, patients who have who have established type 1 diabetes is to uh, replace the, the beta cells that have been destroyed by the autoimmune disease in their own pancreas with a transplant of insulin-producing islets. While this was very uh, effective in animal models in our research, once it was taken to the clinic, there were added complications and it was very difficult to isolate sufficient numbers of human islets from human pancreas tissue to, to use for these transplants. And in any transplant situation, you have to stop the immune response from rejecting the foreign tissue. So there, is, you know, there are a number of problems with 
uh, human islet transplants as a, as a, a routine treatment for type 1 diabetes. It's not a routine treatment at present. It's restricted to patients that are difficult, their blood sugar levels are difficult to control with insulin therapy and they can suffer from um, uh, hypos, hypoglycemia. Uh, so that's, that's the set of conditions for which islet transplants are currently used. And it's still under a clinical trial uh, situation. It's not a, a routine treatment that's available at, at this point. Currently, I think it's in the last uh, 10, 12 years, there's been big developments in this area. Uh, particular, this started with um, a breakthrough in Canada where they identified an immu- a group of immunosuppressive drugs that allowed the islet tissue to survive much better than had previously um, been achieved. Currently, I think about 44% of the islet transplants lead to insulin independence, so where patients are taken off can remain off insulin therapy. That's up to about three years after the transplant, but thereafter there tends to be a gradual decline in in that as well. And this may be due to toxic effects of of the drugs on the transplanted tissue. So there's still still some work to go, but there have been major developments and major improvements in in that area. And it's it's still uh, developing as a potential new treatment for patients with established disease. So an immunosuppressing drug, naively, Mm. is suppressing your immune response. Is it a general suppressing of your immune response? Yes, it's not tissue specific it's not specific just for the uh the islet transplant so your immune system there is there for a very good reason is it, is it not? to protect you yes yeah, against yes. infections so there's a trade-off and the way that uh, this therapy is uh, adapted to treat patients who have had an islet transplant is to try to induce a safe period early on and then uh, taper the immunosuppressive dose after that. There's, there is still some, uh, mm. there's still some work to be done there, but as I said before, there have been major improvements and it's certainly looking much better than it did so, 10 or 20 years ago. <laughs> right. So that's transplanting from another human. Correct. Now, what about transplanting from a different animal, such as a pig, perhaps? Yes. Does, does, that, does that ratchet up the whole immune response problem? Uh, yes. Well, the p- part of the problem with human transplants of any tissue is the limited availability of donor organs and donor tissue. For example, in the case of, of um, type 1 diabetes, one needs... Uh, pancreas human pancreas to be donated in order either to be transplanted as a pancreas transplant or for islets to be uh, isolated and and transplanted in a a much less uh, much more straightforward procedure for for transplanting those islets compared to whole pancreas so to try to get away from the limited the limitation in the number of of donor pancreases available a lot of research has been directed towards using animal organs. Our, uh, our laboratory was, in, was involved in, in that research for quite some time as well. And I think if, if cross-species 
which is what this is, cross-species transplants are to work, I think they have the best chance of working for something like pancreatic islet. Ah, because it's a small organ? Yes, or it's a, it's, it's, um, with these, with these, we call them cellular transplants, even though they're clusters of cells, but they need to be, once they're transplanted, they need to be uh, serviced by blood vessels growing in from the right. patient. Whereas with organ transplants, such as a heart or a kidney, there's essentially a, a physical attachment of the donor blood vessels and the recipient's blood vessels, and that opens up that organ transplants to different type of immune rejection responses. So, yes, it's difficult to control any transplant rejection, but going across species does make it harder. But as I said, if it's going to, if it can work, it will probably have the best chance of working with islets. Well, I guess if mm. people don't object to consuming pigs, they're being butchered anyway for meat, um, <laughs> which I don't eat, by the way, but... If they are, and they have these now surplus pancreases, um, then there's a ready source for them, as opposed to humans. We're reluctant to give up our working organs. I'm quite attached to mine, <laughs> as it happens. Now, there was a line of research, I believe, where they were going to encapsulate the islets in some kind of membrane to protect yes. them from the immune response. What happened with that? That's certainly another area of research, um, and it's basically a physical protective coating around around the islets to protect them from the immune cells but there have been difficulties with that area of research too the uh, islets don't become revascularized as well so getting blood into them uh yes and the other other problem is that that coating that tr that is encapsulation that is meant to protect them can sometimes be and often actually overgrown with uh, connective tissue and that can make the vi can damage the chances of those islets inside the capsules from surviving uh, basically so it hasn't really worked as we might have hoped that research is still ongoing and people are trying to develop better encapsulation methods but uh, I think I think the basic issue is maintaining those islets in a a viable condition for a long period of time. Right. Now another line would be stem cells. What's the current situation with stem cells? I think stem cells have have um, have real potential in certain areas of of uh, replacement therapies. The problems that I I can identify with uh, using stem cells to develop insulin producing beta cells is that currently I think there's a problem in those uh, stem cells leading to beta cells that are, can actually respond to sugar. They can produce insulin but they need to be able to secrete and release the insulin in response to high blood sugar levels and I, that is one of the problems that has remained uh, an issue for stem cell transplants for type 1 diabetes. Uh, the other is that they're likely to produce the same autoantigens that are expressed by the original islet beta cells oh, themselves so and, might... and, and maybe the disease will still come back and uh, attack uh, So you haven't solved them. the underlying problem that caused it in the first place. Okay. Correct. 
So mm. now you, you formed a commercialization. So it's one thing to be in the lab with, oh, do you wear a lab coat? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, actually, I, I um, have other people, very talented and expert people who wear their lab coats in the lab and do all this research and uh, uh, I tend to be stuck as Chris does in an office these days. Wow. Um, but, um, you know, this is team team efforts and, and uh, one can't do this type of any research without talented ah, research teams that... Um, each with their, each person has their own expertise that together uh, allow us to make these breakthroughs and and uh, um, as a result of the research, our more this recent research at the John Curtin School, the ANU has developed a biotechnology company uh, to call Beta Therapeutics. That uh, company has the mission of um, raising funds to translate our, our basic research discoveries uh, to the clinic and, and take our, our new therapeutic drugs to clinical trial and uh, if that's successful and take it to uh, general market. Uh, so from the lab, from the lab coats to the pharmacy or to the, the medical clinic or whatever so they can make a real difference. So it's one thing to understand the mechanisms and the science and the, the, the technology behind it, but the company is about translating that into something that can actually bring That's benefit. right. Taking a new drug to clinical trial is a very expensive uh, exercise. Mm. It's been estimated that to go from where we are now to uh, clinical trial and even beyond that may be in the order of a million, $100 million dollars. So company, our biotechnology company, Beta Therapeutics, it's um, headed by Dr. Keith Snelms, will um, help raise the, the sort of funding possibly by, from Big Pharma, from large pharmaceutical companies, mm. also the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, JDRF, uh, is very supportive of our research and translating it to the clinic. And other investors, uh, ANU, uh, has invested um, funds to help this process, but it's it's not something that happens overnight. It's it's big picture thinking. Isn't That's it? right. Right. That's right. Do, do you find particular challenges from going from a scientific mindset to one of sharing and collaborative work? And you mentioned teams in particular mm. to one of a commercial environment where it's about intellectual property and uh, different sort of motivations other than just pure curiosity and um, so on? Is that a challenge that you found? I think, uh, I think as a scientist and as scientists uh, within our, our team, um, our basic, our main interest is in the research and in understanding, in this case, the disease process and, and ways that we can prevent it. The commercialisation side comes next and there are other expert people in that area that look after that side of things. But one doesn't start this type of research with commercialisation <laughs> as the primary focus. That is something that can develop should the research uh, look promising and look as though it would... Uh, truly benefit you know that subpopulation of, of patients in the public arena one doesn't go into research to to develop a commercial product one goes into research to understand 
disease and, and if we can develop a new therapy, that's wonderful, but other people then look after the commercialisation side of things. So is that an example perhaps of the teamwork you were referring to where you have someone whose focus is on that particular area and, that's right. and they drive you in that way? I can see all kinds of tensions arising you know, with the, the, the financial pressures of a company and so on. Well, there's also financial pressures of research, you know, yes. where we're continually, uh, you know, submitting grant applications to try to obtain the uh, research in the laboratory. Uh, the company looks after yeah. uh, the company side of things and, and working towards translating to the clinic. Well, Charmaine, that's probably a long conversation in its own right. We are unfortunately just running out of time now. So... Charmaine Simonovic, uh, the head of the Diabetes and Transplantation Immunobiology Laboratory at John Curtin Medical School of Research. We've been talking about diabetes, which is a really big thing for people around Australia, and it's been a great pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ryan. It's been best, a pleasure. Best of luck with the research grants and the commercialisation, and may it bring plenty of or export dollars for Australia, a clever country. And speaking of clever, let's have a look and see what we've got coming up on Fuzzy Logic because there's plenty of excitement. Now, tomorrow's column in the Canberra Times, somebody asked me about water. Does water actually have a taste? <laughs> yeah, a lot of the funny questions we get. Well, water does have taste and for all sorts of different reasons. And it's quite a complicated question in its own right. So I look forward to that one in the tomorrow's Canberra Times in the Times 2 supplement. And somebody also asked me a question to the Canberra Times about camouflage. How does camouflage work and why do sailors, of all people, wear camouflage? That's pretty funny. You think sitting on a big ship, you know, yeah, there you are. And plenty more next week. We're out to Tidman Billa. It's the 40th anniversary of the Deep Space Station, the 70-metre antenna out there at Tidman Villa, so we're going to be out covering that and on Sunday next week we have a gentleman named Robert Brand who will be our guest and he was personally involved with the NASA missions including the moon landing so a really interesting guy and I'm really looking forward to meeting Robert next Sunday so join us next Sunday on Fuzzy Logic to meet Robert Brand plenty more catch you later <laughs>